Hey everyone, welcome back to The Coop with Meyer Hatchery, where we talk all things poultry in hopes of inspiring crazy chicken keepers and educating future flock owners. I'm your host Kendra and today I'm flying solo in a mini-sode. This mini-sode is a little bit different than our traditional episodes as we cover relevant happenings in and around Meyer Hatchery. Sometimes we also interview industry leaders, and today I'm excited to be joined by Adam Danforth, a butcher, educator, and James Beard award-winning author. You may recognize the name from his comprehensive butchering books, including his newly released book, Butchering Chickens, A Guide to Humane Small-Scale Processing. He is an active board member of the Good Meat Project and Chef's Collaborative, and through his work, he leads experiential workshops worldwide on butchery and meat science for venues such as Stone Barn Center for Agriculture, the James Beard Foundation Chef's Boot Camp, Google, and the National Bison Association. Adam also consults and provides education to restaurants, including Eleven Madison Park, Gramercy Tavern, Bazaar Meat, and Maud. In today's interview, Adam's passion is truly evident and I can't wait to share his wealth of knowledge and insight with you all. But before we dive into the interview, let's go over the review of the week. This review is on Apple Podcasts from user Ashley2406, and it's titled, Yay. They write, I am new to chicken keeping this year, and I love that someone with knowledge is helping me through my newest adventure. We're so thankful for your kind words and are glad to hear that you've been able to put our knowledge to good use. That's exactly why we started The Coop to educate and inspire. Now, since you can't really respond to reviews, I thought it would be nice to give you all a shout out during our weekly episodes to show that we see you and are enjoying your feedback. If you're tuning in on Apple Podcasts, we would greatly appreciate it if you drop us a review and maybe your review will be featured next week. So without further ado, let's get into this mini-sode. Welcome to The Coop, Adam. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. For those that are not familiar with you, can you just give us a brief introduction into who you are and what you're currently up to these days? Sure. I am a butcher and educator and board member of the Good Meat Project and Chef's Collaborative. And I spend my time trying to educate people on the benefits of well-sourced, well-raised meat and hoping to encourage people to reach out into their local networks in order to source such things if they choose to eat it. And also challenging some of the long-held stigmas around meat and the perception of what we experience when we eat meat, which I think a lot of people have certain uh, long-standing ideas of what certain kinds of meat might taste like and what they may experience, which drives their preferences. And so I like to create experiential workshops and opportunities for people to broaden their perspectives on what the world of meat can really offer while at the same time um, investing in your money that you're spending on meat into good sources that are ecologically sound and regenerative agriculture-based and things like that. And I do that both through those two organizations, Good Meat Project and Chef Collaborative. And I'm also an author and I have three books on these subjects that deal with people who are raising animals at home. So a lot of homesteaders, a lot of farmers, 
but also people who want to pursue butchery either in professional and home context. So they cover really all the livestock that we deal with, poultry, rabbits, sheep, goats, pork, and beef. And it's uh, spread across three different books. That's amazing. That's quite a bit to have your hands in. So let's just take a moment to talk about some of the organizations you're part of. Let's start with the Good Meat Project. What role do you play in that organization specifically? I'm mainly I'm a board member, but I'm also one of the main educators that that carries out some of our programs. So the mission of the Good Meat Project is that we build pathways to responsible meat production and consumption. And really we do that through experiential workshops and working with various segments of the meat industry. We look at them as what we like to call them are seeders, feeders, and eaters. And the seeders are the ones who are farmers and ranchers and people raising animals. The feeders are the ones working in processing and butchery and food production and professional food service who are helping to bring animals from that farmer state into a portioned or service model or something along those lines. And then you have the eaters who, of course, are the consumers. And each of them has different needs and different language. And, and so there are those three areas. And largely what we try to do through our programs is help connect them and, and also help figure out what are their needs and, and how do we help broaden their perspectives and understanding how to reach each other with each other's priorities so that all of them can work towards common goals that have to do with, again, creating those good pathways to responsible meat production and consumption. So some of the programs that we do have to do with um, meat camps that are experiential multi-day workshop opportunities. We have one called Girls Meat Camp, which is mainly focused on women entering into the butchery program. And then we have other single-day experiential workshops that are also hands-on. We also run or we help incubate uh, a style of meat education called the Meat Collective Style of, of Education, which is independent businesses around the country that are utilizing local farmers and producers and sourcing from them and then utilizing professional chefs and butchers in order to teach workshops that could appeal to any of those three same segments, seeders, feeders, and eaters. Um, so we have those operating in a, several cities around the country. And then we also have the Atlas of Butchery, which is a program that I brought uh, to the organization that I've been conceiving for a while. And I help support those programs. And then then mainly my ongoing role is, is to support the organization as a board member. I love the cultural aspect that you're bringing to the Good Meat Project through this um, new program that you are kind of spearheading. Can you just give us a brief overview on what that project looks like? Sure. Yeah, the Atlas of Butchery is, um, is, a, is a program or a concept that I've been thinking about for, for many years. And it's now a program of the Good Meat Project. And its goal is to document, explore, and share endangered global meat traditions in order to create a lasting change in the current meat production system that we have. And what this means is that it's looking around the world to cues from cultural traditions that have to do with how they have carried out good meat ethos in these in these cultures for multiple generations and who is left that is still practicing these traditions so 
An example could be, let's say, the Iberico pig and the Iberico ham, the jamón de bolota that is in Spain. And it's a very complicated topic because it intersects with so many aspects of the culture there from a vast landscape called the Dehesa, which is the size of Portugal in Western Spain, to also a specific breed, which is the Iberico breed, to you know, a manner in which they celebrate a pig through this long-term curing process that is very much in harmony with its own conditions of temperature and humidity fluctuations. Um, and, and also that these animals are raised within harmony with an environment that produces the acorns that are the quintessential component of the fat that makes the ham so distinctive. So there's really a a whole inner working that is here that has been developed for you know many many generations and and so looking to what those traditions are and really looking to what that can teach us and teach other people around good meat traditions around the world that have continued to operate in harmony with their surroundings and and so we're looking to those around the world and trying to discover who are those masters who are left um, it could be I say master is sort of a a large as as a term that could encompass an individual who is still practicing or or maybe also a community themselves that are still practicing so it doesn't always have to be a single person but trying to find those traditions and then document them so that there is some record of them because i feel like there is a great risk of many of those traditions that being lost in the next 5 to 15 years as this older generation that in many cases is the last one truly connected to the multi-generational knowledge. Uh, when that's lost, we have to sort of rediscover it ourselves, which is, a, is an arduous and an unnecessary process if we can document it now. But of course, the means of documenting in a written or video or audio, while necessary in this regard, isn't the best way to preserve knowledge. So on top of that, we also want to disseminate that information so that we get it into other people's hands and then also create a network of possible apprenticeships and, and things like that so that there can be that same experiential opportunity for learning from the masters and from other people who have passed down that knowledge. So, you know, the main goal is really above all of this is, you know, preservation of butchery cultures around the world. Yeah, I do think it's a very important initiative. And even for like the average person being able to see and understand that and use it as a comparison to just illustrate how sterile our processes are now especially when mm -hmm. it comes to meat. The loss of flavor, just in general, is incredible to me. And I don't think this generation understands that because that's all we've ever eaten. That's all we know. I, and so if they were to experience one of your workshops or just talk to their local farmer who does carry on maybe some of those traditions, even not on a mass scale, but just for their family. I know there's some local farms around here that specifically raise breeds for their family because that's what they've done for generations and that's what they like. Um, and seeing those differences, it's a huge eye opener for people. It, it really, it really is. And, and I'm glad you mentioned flavor as a component of that because it's actually that element of flavor is one of the key tenets to what I teach in all my workshops because there's this relationship and to what you're saying about, you know, this generation doesn't know is is true because over the last 30 or 40 years slowly there's been this process 
of growing animals that have less and less inherent flavor based upon the conditions that actually develop flavor in meat. And, and what, they've, what they've told people is that what you should aspire to in meat is tenderness. And so they've created conditions that create, that produce tenderness over everything else. And those conditions work well for their business model because it's younger animals, it's animals that don't move as much, which can mean confinement, and it's animals that don't eat as much diverse feed, which means like, you know, cereals and grains that are, that are fed to animals in confinement. So these are, these are the things that produce an animal that gets gets larger, quicker, and younger. And, but the comparison of the quality of the meat to me is related to what my emotional experience is and my sensory experience when I eat it. And so much of that is rooted in flavor. And the things that really create incredible flavor in meat are actually in the opposite of what creates this, this kind of tenderness that they aspire to. And those are animals that have, you know, access to natural behavior and can roam outside and have diverse feed from their landscape and their natural environment. Heritage breeds that have old genetics that are also developing far more robust um, fiber structures in their meat and also animals that are raised to an older age. And those are really the things that I also try to tackle with the workshops that I do. In fact, when I do the blind tastings and these sort of profile workshops with people, they're astounded by how delicious these older animals actually are. And that's because underneath that, the conditions that create incredible flavor are, are there from just the older age that they, they live to and, and the access to the other conditions in their environment. And I want to take a second to simplify that concept even further. So even if you've never had heritage breeds or experienced the flavor profiles we're discussing right now, you can take that concept and simplify it down to your eggs. So even if you're an urban flock owner or a small backyard flock owner, you know the difference between your eggs and store-bought eggs at this point. And I think a lot of times we tend to take that for granted, especially once it becomes so accessible to us. Uh, We sell our eggs at a roadside stand. So we have customers stop by all the time and grab eggs that we don't necessarily see or talk to face to face. And we had a couple who told us how great our eggs were and we kind of laughed a little bit because, you know, to us at this point, an egg is an egg. Even though we know nutritionally it's a lot better since we're free ranging and provide quality feed and all of that. Um, But then they decided to stop by again when our flock was out front and we talked to them and got to know them a little bit better. They have a main residence near the Chicago area. And she talked about how she was from Poland. And it wasn't until she found our eggs that she was able to recreate a dessert that she loves, which has something to do with whipping egg yolks and sugar together. And using store-bought eggs, the egg yolks just would not hold up to that process. And having fresh farm, free-range, nutritional yolks and being able to whip them with the sugar, it recreated this memory for her that she had been losing out on for years now. And as soon as she saw the flock out in the yard, again, it sparked the memories of Poland and having the chickens free ranging in their yards. So her sharing that with us was just super empowering 
And I was so proud to be able to offer that experience for her or recreate that memory for her. Having her share that story with us, um, I'm super grateful for. As a homesteader or as a farmer, that's something you can only dream of providing for an individual. Um, And so that just, again, I think you can relate to the whole heritage breeds and flavor profile and the cultural differences that good quality meat and eggs can produce. Now, that same topic of people moving to a more local landscape has been continuing to change with the pandemic situation we're under. And there is the big question out there looming of whether or not local is going to stick. You see a lot more people um, trying to find local resources to sustain their food chain or food supply. Where you're at currently, have you heard that same conversation? And what is some of your input on that new local or changing landscape? Well, one, I'm, I'm really happy to hear that you were able to experience some of that feedback firsthand and realize how much it's part of the connection that people have that can fuel their experience or positive experience with any food, whether it's meat or vegetables or, you know, fish or dairy or whatever it might be. Having that story behind it and often having that firsthand connection to a sense of place is such an important part of it. And you can't get that unless there's some sort of locale to your source. And of course, that's not available for everybody, but there is a power that's there when in even the smallest way, you begin to try to understand where your food is coming from, even if it's coming from afar, but you understand the story behind it a bit more and you end up connecting to it. So that's awesome to hear. As far as the pandemic changing the meat landscape, it certainly changed it. I think that um, with people's um, concern about where their food is going to come from, there's also... uh, seems to be an inherent concern around um, uh, not necessarily running out of food per se, but in order to have enough food on hand to limit the times that you need to get out. And so in that regard, I think a lot of people are looking to direct to consumer sources for meat, which is great for people who were previously set up for that or people who were able to quickly shift into that model. That would include butcher shops and farms that sell direct and, and things like that from from most of them that I've heard, they're doing many times their normal business. Um, and trying to meet that demand is, of course, a challenge in and of itself, not only from an operation side, but also just because you just can't like flip things in a way that suddenly you have a lot more meat available. You know, Animals take time to grow. There are certain seasons that are appropriate for slaughtering. And depending on how an operation runs, you know, these things are finite. And that's been one of the claims of fame of industrialization is sort of this idea that there's a limitless source of food in order to feed X amount of people. But in reality, you know, good meat has its seasons and it it has its limits for what's available. And I think the people who have been hit the most are the people who, the operations that had large portions of their business, which were wholesale dependent, because most wholesale accounts, I think, have had to freeze up um, or or just gone away in in a sense, whether it's, you know, as most food service operations have dramatically reduced what they're capable of producing or have closed temporarily or some unfortunately permanently. So I think the ones that are looking for ways in order to that need our support in other ways are the ones that deal dealt with a lot of those wholesale opportunities. And so some of what we're doing at the Good Meat Project is trying to figure out how do we create 
opportunities for support to those good meat operations that um, that did have a lot of their operation rooted in, in wholesale support. So a lot has already been asked of farmers and ranchers over the years in order to meet the shifting expectations of consumers. And I just have my own sort of cautionary concern around people investing too much right now into expecting this to last past when we get back to going to um, some sense of normalcy in society. I think there will be a longstanding impact, but what, what that is, I'm, I'm just not really sure right now. I mean, I would like to see it shift to having more support for local organ or local food systems. Um, but I have my own sort of like pessimistic doubts around how people go back to conveniences, no matter how much they recognize the benefit of an alternative that could be, you know, local, but involve a bit more effort. But certainly I think that in the midst of all this, what it's shown is that resiliency, community resilience, and this sovereignty that can exist within communities when we are suddenly semi-disconnected from each other can be part of what is great about a local food system and that we can support our local populations with what is produced around us in in many ways. And so I I would like to see that be more of the conversation that at least gets more policy work towards it and more invested into it in a means of, of boosting it. It can't just be farmer's markets, which Um, I think have their own inherent limitations. No, I think that's great insight. The wholesalers never even crossed my mind until I talked to you. And then afterwards, I was just thinking about all of the farmers, vegetable, meat, all across the board who are going to be struggling. And I don't know about you, but where I live, the farmers markets are also getting hit. So even if they did have wholesale accounts, they couldn't even revert back to a market. A lot of people are having to go online. And my background is in web development. So I'm seeing all these people struggle to try to get their products online and be able to sell and deliver and ship. Um, And I've talked to some local friends of mine who also farm and they're like, Kendra, I don't want to spend more than a couple hundred dollars because I don't want to do this long term. I don't want to do door to door delivery and I don't want to ship like it's just not cost effective for them. They're really just doing it in the short term to try to stay afloat. And it breaks my heart to watch them struggle with, you know, greenhouses full of vegetables and, you know, their pastures are full of all these animals and there's really not a good solution for them. I hope people see and try to help as much as they can. I know there's only so much we can do at this point. What is your best advice on getting in touch with uh, local suppliers or local farmers? And what's the best way we can try to support them at this time? Well, I think to your your point is is good around what the the sort of like resistance of a farmer in your area to have to adapt to meet these sort of expectations right now. And it's, as you know, it's, it's hard enough to farm, like just to farm. And so in order to also become a marketing, you know, arm of your organization and suddenly become the whole logistics and delivery vehicle is like, it's, it's so much to ask from them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think even just farmers who are at a farmer's market is, is enough of a challenge sometimes. Um, and I do, I also really feel for the ones who, um, 
are struggling because of their wholesale accounts and the farmer's market is not open or if people are weary about going, you can always look to see who is at the farmer's market usually through directories and then possibly being able to connect to those farms directly. Many of them are shifting right now to, you know, neighborhood drop CSAs, online ordering, things like that. And while they may not want to do that in the long term, many of them are shifting to that right now, which I think is another great way to connect to local places. If, um, there, if you're looking for other resources, you can go to the Good Meat Project website. You can go to goodmeatproject.org slash resources. And we've put together a whole list of possible resources for you to reach local producers or direct-to-consumer producers who ship nationwide for meat products as well. Two key websites that do that are Eat Wild and Local Harvest. Two websites that have search engines that allow you to search based upon locale and product and things like that and can help re- help you reach local producers in your area. Um, I think those are probably the best places that I would normally point people if they were looking to connect to places either locally or nationally that are that are rooted in good practices and and available right now. And I'll be sure to link those websites below in the show notes too for easier access. So I highly encourage you to take a couple minutes out of your day even and just do that search through either those websites or just online or even reach out to your local community. And and there's also restaurants in your area that I'm sure work with local sources for meat and produce as well. And uh, as we know, the restaurants you know, the restaurant industry has been gutted by this pandemic and they can use all the support we can give. So, you know, reaching out to restaurants and understanding, you know, what potentially they're offering. And if they're not offering anything, you know, looking to see who are they using potentially as local sources that would be wholesale accounts that are probably having to figure out how to sell the consumers would also be a great effort to be made to help people in the local food shed. That's great advice as well. Um, So let's talk a little bit about processing at home. Now, if you're not familiar with Adam's books, he just released a new book, Butchering Chickens, A Guide to Humane Small-Scale Processing, which is a really, really great guide. I got my hands on my own copy and have gone through it. It's very in-depth with a lot of photos, um, so it can help get you started. But let's talk about the one thing that probably holds a huge percentage of people back And that one thing to me would be fear. Would you agree? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there's fear in a lot of, in a lot of areas that are involved in meat, fear of cooking it wrong, fear of butchering it wrong, fear of killing it wrong. And so, yeah, I think, I think that that's part of what fuels people's trepidation around, around dipping their toes or getting fully involved in any of those areas. Those fears may actually come to fruition. Like things do happen, especially if you're learning. But I think the key point is learning from those mistakes. We've processed chickens for years now. We made several mistakes leading up to where we are. And one of the great things about meat, in most cases, this isn't always how it happens, but for the most part, it's salvageable. The meat is no less nutritious or you know good quality because you made uh, you cut a pork chop that doesn't have like parallel sides to it or you ended up slashing into the tenderloin and suddenly you have to turn it into medallions instead of a whole roast. Learning from the process itself, I think, is crucial. 
these are all things that are part of a learning process. And in the end, I think the reality is that like, if we start with a really great animal that is raised well, and it's killed well, no matter how we butcher it, it's going to result in amazing meat that's nutritious for your family or for you, and is providing a great experience of sharing a meal and being connected to the source of it. And I think that is really the priority for people getting involved. And the honing of a skill of cutting meat will just happen over repetition and with paying attention to a certain aspect of like, you know, these cues and nuances through through cutting. And that's why my books have so many photographs in them, because I think the only way to do that is through visual cues and through repetition. So chickens are a great way to do that because most of the time you got to butcher a lot of chickens, you know, whether it's slaughtering a hundred chickens in a morning or whether it's breaking down 50 chickens for parts for packaging or whatever it might be. They're one of the animals that ends up encouraging repetition more than any others. And I will say too that there's going to be a learning curve unless your family has raised meat or raised poultry for years and years and you've grown up butchering, it's a brand new experience to you and there's going to be a learning curve. And I'm so thankful for your book and looking through it. The illustrations are great. I'm definitely a visual learner. And when we started with our chickens, <laughs> of course, we did our research to try to find best practices and so forth. And it's hard to shuffle through all that content. It's overwhelming. There's opposing opinions on best ways to do things, of course. Um, and I'll share this brief story with you. So when we started, we actually didn't have a cone. So what we did was we hung the chicken up by its legs on basically a rope that stretched across the yard. We found this video that we really liked. And we're like, wow, this makes sense to us. This seems easy. Let's give this a go. So, you know, we're out there. We have our phone going at the same time to make sure we're doing it right. And I'm holding the bird with the wings in. It's upside down. Uh, Rich is taking it and tying its feet up onto this cord. And I'm just, I'm not really holding it tight. I'm just kind of stabilizing it as he prepares to make the cut to dispatch the chicken. So here I am holding it. He makes his cut and the chicken naturally has its reflexes and flaps its wings well, I was not prepared for that. Of course, the video cuts that <laughs> cuts that out. You can't have that on YouTube, really. Started flapping around and blood went all over the front of me and in my face. And the only thing I could yell was, that wasn't in the video. <laughs> I'm trying to hold and like re-get this chicken. Because if you've ever butchered a chicken, you know their wings flap around and it can actually break the wing. So I'm trying to grab it to salvage it. And Rich is just kind of laughing at me like this is, you know, what did we get ourselves into? Now, from that experience and lots of arm pain from holding chickens, we moved to a cone, which is much more efficient. And we highly recommend going that route to begin with. But that was kind of like our first experience. And we were just like, oh, we have 30 more chickens <laughs> to butcher. <laughs> and this is how it starts. So having your book, I think, or really being able to find any resource out there that walks you through all of the steps and gives you a truthful experience. Like you tell people exactly how it's going to be. There's not a surprise. There are a ton of resources online. There's a ton of videos to watch. The, the challenge is really understanding you know, what the reliability of those knowledge sources are and often having to piece them together to get the whole perspective of actually how to properly do something. Um, 
from the onset, that was the goal for me of writing these books was to provide information that would be encompassing or, or um, uh, would have, a, have enough information to, to truly teach people how to butcher any, any animal from start to finish with the understanding of the science behind it to the proper tools to a process that honors the animal and, and respects the process of, of taking life in exchange for our own sustenance and then offers multiple different ways to break it down so that people can really develop their own style of butchery. Because in the end, I think how you cut meat is related to you know how your family eats, how you want to eat, what you're going to do with it. What are you are you going to cure stuff? Is it going to be all fresh meat? Are you going to be grinding a lot of it for a large family or for other preparations? Like all these things inform how you're going to butcher. And so having a larger repertoire of approaches to breakdowns is also one of the things that I think is helpful for people to really piece it together and come up with their own plan. So the books are all structured in that same sort of, of way. And from an equipment standpoint, you know, as you well discovered, the, you know, the use of certain pieces of equipment is optional, but highly recommended. And a cone is certainly one of them. You can, you can do it without a cone, but the cones make things so much more efficient and also safer for you, also better for carcass quality and from an aspect of allowing the animal to relax more, comforting them beforehand and holding them upside down and having them in a cone and creating this sense of, of ease in them is also one of the ways that you um, make for a quickened bleed out, which then uh, you know, limits any sort of end of life discomfort for them. So all those things I think play a really important role. But if you don't have access to cones, you don't have access to cones and, and there's still ways to do it. And so I talk about all that, all that stuff as well. Um, you know, definitely no matter how you're slaughtering an animal, you're going to get blood on yourself though. So <laughs> yeah, just try to keep it out of your face, right? <laughs> yeah, no, it's um, helpful. And, and like you, I was like, I, well, I don't know, I don't know what your background was, but I didn't have a background in farming or butchering when I chose to get into this profession. So there, similarly, there was a lot of, of learning curve moments for me where I was realizing things that I think other people who have been within that world for more of their life probably took for granted. Um, and so it's been revelatory in a lot of ways to have um, these, these aha moments within the meat world and butchering and, and um, through these, these, hands-on, these hands-on experiences. And I will say that those aha moments are truly beautiful, even when it comes to butchery. I mean, we tried breaking down a chicken several times before it finally clicked, like before we finally knew exactly what joints we were breaking down and how we wanted to take the breasts out with a tenderloin, just things like that, whether or not we wanted the skin on or the skin off, all of those things, when they finally click and you're able to be a little bit more efficient, it's like, okay. Now we got this. And so it does, it takes repetition and it takes time. I definitely want to stress that and encourage people to keep going. Don't let that one mistake or one bad moment derail it. The good meat that you're receiving from that poultry, the experience you're getting from that process is so worth it. It's worth that one mistake. Mistakes happen no matter how experienced you are. The, you know, you're working with a lot of, unforeseen variables when you're working with live animals in their own environment that and so it's it's not like with more experience 
mistakes are never going to happen. And sometimes those mistakes can be disturbing. And part of the realization is that they should be disturbing if they're a mistake that causes undue duress on the animal. And that's one of the good things to recognize is that you want to avoid that and you have a commitment to learning from those mistakes in order to limit any sort of situation like that in the future. But there's only so much we can control. And as you said, it's like the end result of what you provide for sustenance for you know you and the ones you love is, I think, worth the process. It absolutely is. Now, I hope you've enjoyed this segment so far as we've covered the initiatives of the Good Meat Project and Atlas of Butchery. I also hope you sincerely take into consideration how you can support your local farmers and butchers during these unprecedented times. Adam's insight will continue as we've split his interview into a two-part series. Next week, we'll dive further into the small-scale processing setup, the community aspect of butchery, and how you can participate even if you don't have a flock of your own. I've provided links below in the show notes for some of the resources we've covered in today's episode, but before I let you go, Adam has also generously offered a signed copy of his newest book. To win this signed copy of Butchering Chickens, A Guide to Humane Small-Scale Processing, all you have to do is leave us a review on your preferred podcast listening platform. For example, this could be on Apple Podcasts. Leave a review of The Coop, take a screenshot of your review, and tag us on social. I've included all of the links and further directions below. In addition to the giveaway, you can also purchase a signed copy of Butchering Chickens, where Adam has extended his generosity, giving you 25% off. Plus, all proceeds from your purchase will go directly to the Good Meat Project to support farms, food professionals, and consumers during the COVID-19 pandemic. You can find the link and discount code below. Again, thank you for listening to The Coop. We can't wait to see you next week as our conversation continues. Have a great week. Stay safe.